How many of you like riddles? Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. The lion and honey. And now you have to kill all those foxes and bring them to me, right? No, riddles. What's the purpose of a riddle? It's to engage one's mind and, and get them thinking. So since that first one was a complete dud, let me try another one on you. Okay, we'll try a modern one, a modern riddle. How about this? I am one of your most prized possessions. I am one of your most prized possessions. You receive a new supply of me every day, but you never seem to have enough. You can save me. You can invest me. You can spend me. And you can waste me. And when I'm gone... You can never get me back. Time. Time. One of our most prized possessions, right? Maybe, have you ever thought of this? That every single person gets the same allotment of time every day, right? 24 hours. From the most productive person to the least productive person. Everybody gets the same allotment. So it really comes down to what do we do with that which has been given to us as a gift of God. So I want to speak to you this morning about leaders, hard-working men. And I want to speak to you about the sacrifices that those that are in leadership among the people of God are required to make so that we will relate to them and appreciate them. Open your Bibles up to um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thess chapter 5, and we're going to just look at a couple of verses, verses 12 and 13. Now, the context of First Thessalonians is Paul and his missionary companions are out planting churches, and they arrive here in Thessalonica, and the welcome they receive initially is, is quite good, but it's, uh, it quickly turns sour on them. And they actually are uh, not able to stay very long at all because of the hostility of the, the Jews in that area. And they are prematurely forced to, to evacuate that area and to leave the work, the church planting work that they have begun there. And after several months, the, the Apostle Paul is just worried sick about this little church that was begun there in Thessalonica. And he When he gets to the place where he can't stand it anymore, he sends Timothy back to check on the church there and to find out what's going on. 
And uh, Timothy does that. He goes back there and he checks on the church at Thessalonica. And lo and behold, the church is actually doing quite well. Suffering persecution, yes, but the church is, is actually strong and doing quite well. And so Timothy returns to Paul and, and joins him in Corinth and gives Paul this uh, report that the church is doing well there in Thessalonica. You can read all about this in, in Acts chapter 17 following. And when Paul receives Timothy's report, he is, he is so overjoyed at how well the church is doing that he sits down and he writes this letter. And this is, this is one of Paul's most affectionate letters. Even though he's only been there a very short time, he has just an incredible amount of affection for this fledgling church, this small group of believers. And so as he writes to them in, in 1 Thessalonians here, you can, as you read the book, you can just feel his affection as it bleeds through. Now, this particular text that is before us this morning in chapter 5 and verses 12 and 13, it, it speaks about leadership in the church and how the church is to relate to its leaders. And we don't know specifically whether he is talking about elders at this point or not. It's not clear. It's possible that Timothy, when he returned to Thessalonica, that part of his responsibility there was to appoint some elders in that church. That would certainly be Paul's pattern. We find in Acts 14, verse 23, how they would go back and and appoint elders in a local fellowship. So it might be elders, but it doesn't say, and we're not sure. But the point of the matter is that whether it's elders or not, there's no doubt there is a group of men here that are acting in in the capacity of giving spiritual oversight to this very young flock. And Paul wants to address himself to the relationship that exists between this group of men and this local assembly. Relationship. So he writes, verse 12, We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. There are two lessons, I think two vital lessons, that we can learn regarding church leadership. And I want to look at them this morning. And I want to do it so that we can understand how we as a, as a congregation can and should honor God in this important area of ministry. This is what some might call a centering sermon. It's one of those sermons that you give periodically in order to to sort of like a plumb line, draw the congregation back to truths that they know. And it's not that in any way this fellowship uh, demonstrates a lack of appreciation for its leadership. Not at all. And the Thessalonian church was not lacking appreciation for their leaders. So this is, this is not a corrective sermon to, to address a problem. This is a centering sermon to just remind ourselves about some important themes. It's part of this mini-series that we're doing here on the church in anticipation of our 20th anniversary. And 
celebrating all that God has done among us. So there are two vital lessons this morning, and I want to just look at them with you. The first lesson is addressed to the leadership of the church. I'm going to assume elders, and so from this point forward, I'm just going to refer to it as elders rather than leadership. But the lesson is this. Excuse me. God requires rigorous effort. God requires rigorous effort. Verse 12. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Diligently labor. That's the term I want to just focus on. Kapiao in the Greek, and not that that's all that important to you other than to know this, that it, that it speaks of something that is strenuous, a strenuous kind of toil, a, a work to the point of exhaustion. Diligent labor may be actually even an under-translation of the, of the amount of, of effort that is exerted by this term. The word springs from the life of a manual laborer. It's it's a term of one who works with their hands, doing hard work. One who earns their bread by the sweat of their brow. One who strenuously exerts themselves. And this common word, Paul chooses, and it becomes sort of uniquely his word in the New Testament, not exclusively, but, but he's certainly the one who most frequently uses it. And he uses it, to describe the work of ministry. He specifically chooses this term, this this word that speaks of strenuous labor, to describe the work of ministry. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, where Paul says there, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored, and there's your word, I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Paul describing his ministry there, he says, But we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So it's this idea that ministry is hard work. Ministry is hard work. Leadership among the people of God, is hard work, and and that's what Paul expects. That's the pattern that he lays down. It is not for the faint of heart. It is for those who are serious and willing to work hard. Now, where where is the hard work uh, lived out? He says, among you. Do you see it? We appreciate those who work hard, who diligently labor among you. It's, it's relationship. 
There is, a, there is a family going on. And so those hard workers are not hard working in some other place, in, in some other vineyard. They are, they are working hard in this local congregation. They're involved in the strenuous activity among you. Among you. Peter, referring to elders in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, says, shepherd the flock of God among you. It's this idea that we are together in this. We're a family together. Now, beloved, spiritual leadership is hard and stressful work. It is hard work and it is stressful work. Caring for the welfare of of God's people is an emotionally draining activity. Emotionally draining It is time-consuming. It is frequently lonely and frequently discouraging. It requires dealing with the effects of sin in people's lives. Dealing with broken relationships and, and trying to reconcile them and put them back together. Dealing with devastated families in which the the impact of sin has torn a family apart. It means addressing vile behaviors that you would rather not have to deal with. It means helping correct destructive thought patterns that the people of God fall prey to. It is hard work. It is lonely work. It is discouraging work. And it is work that is more than any one man could possibly do on their own. It requires a, a group of men, a group of hardworking men who will together labor at these activities. It's not an eight-to-five job, nor is it a two-to-three-hour-a-month board meeting. It requires men and their families to make tremendous sacrifice, tremendous sacrifice, of energy, of time, of of family activity in order to be able to do the work of the ministry, to labor hard among the people of God. And often the work that is done is unappreciated or unknown. And the burnout rate is high. The burnout rate is high. So why in the world would anybody sign up for that, right? Right? Why would anyone want that? What causes a man to want to labor like that among the people of God? The answer is, it's the call of God in a man's life. It is the call of God. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. Take this one to the bank. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. The Spirit of God puts it in the heart of a man to be willing and to be desirous of making the kind of sacrifices that are required to shepherd the flock of God. It is a divine thing. And if it's not then the man has no business being there. We appreciate those who diligently 
labor among you. What kind of rigorous effort is Paul talking about here, this diligent labor? What kind of, what kind of effort really is involved? Well, actually, the, the grammatical construction of the verse answers the question for us, and that's a good thing. So we don't have to really guess at it. Grammatically, there are three participles in this verse. So what? Well, it's important because it explains the verse. There are three participles, and they, and they follow a single article. What, what, I'm just telling you that because what it means is that there's only one group of men here, not three. We're not to appreciate those who, A, diligently labor, different group, those who have charge over you, different group, those who give you instruction. It's, it's one group, one group of men. And the, the way it's constructed, the, the, the second and the third participle, so, so those having charge over you, if you if you'd like it that way, and those giving you instructions, so we'll make them ing words so that so they sound like participles at least. Help define what it means for those who are diligently laboring. Diligently laboring. The basic idea here is is that those who are diligently laboring, those who are exerting the hard work, it is the hard work of having charge over you and it is the hard work of giving you instruction. Or said another way, it is the hard work of leading and it is the hard work of admonishing. Let's look at this first one, having charge over you in the Lord or leading. Leading. What is the rigorous effort Paul's talking about? It's the rigorous effort of leading. The Greek word that is translated here as having charge over you literally means to stand before you. It is those who are standing before you. This is another favorite word of Paul's to speak about spiritual leadership. And it, and it communicates the idea of care and provision within a family. It's the idea of a father and his children. Those who are, who are standing before the people of God. Those who are, who are caring for the people of God. Providing for the people of God. Now, when we come to the, come to the Scriptures, it, we have to fight the battle not to bring our, our 21st century Western understanding of, of language and import meaning into the text that's not there. So this word, which is, is frequently translated um, either lead or manage, we need to be careful that we don't import a business context. Right? We have managers at work. And so we read the word manage and we sort of have that business model. And that's, that's not at all what Paul's talking about. We talk about leadership and, and we begin to think about you know, the strong natural leader or, or, or you know, the football coach or whatever. And that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about those who stand as an example before and among the people of God to provide for them, to care for them like a father would his own children. You can see it in Romans chapter 12. 
Paul writes, verse 6, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, he who leads, there's your word, he who leads, he who stands before, is to do it with diligence. Verse 8. And evaluating the, the character of a man for the, the role of elder among the people of God, Paul says he must be one who manages, same word, manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. One who stands before his household well. One who, who cares and provides for his household well. It is this household, it is this family of God kind of context. So back to 1 Thess 5 and verse 12. Appreciate those who diligently labor among you and, and have charge over you, who stand before you in the Lord. You see that? In the Lord. That, that defines the sphere of the elders' responsibility for the flock. They are responsible for the, for the spiritual condition of the people of God. They are not responsible for where people live. They are not responsible for the kind of cars that people drive. They are not responsible for the house that people own or don't own. Where they work. And a whole host of other sort of practical life issues. Now, may they have an opinion guided by wisdom? Of course. But it's not law. It's not law. The elders are not in a position to tell you where you can live, what kind of car you can drive, what kind of home you can buy, where you should work. That's not their realm. And the elders need to remember that. They are to they are to exercise their, their leadership with regard to the, to the issues of your soul. In fact, outside of the church, you may be superior to them. You might be their boss. But inside the church, they lead you in the Lord. Now, the church is not their kingdom said that last week. The church does not belong to the elders. The church belongs to who? Speak to me. The church belongs to who? Belongs to Christ. Okay? It doesn't belong to the elders. But the elders have a very significant role to play. Leading the people of God. Secondly, the end of verse 12. Admonishing the people of God. Appreciate those who diligently labor among you. How do they labor? They labor by leading you and they labor by giving you instruction or admonishing you. That is literally what the word means. Nuthateo, it means to admonish. It means to admonish. Strictly speaking, it, it means to put something into the mind of another person to impart understanding. It is to place it into their mind in order that they might understand. Inherent in the word is the, is the notion of calling to someone's attention their faults and their shortcomings, their defects, and reminding them of the dangers they face unless they repent. So it's a word of confrontation. 
That makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? We don't like that sort of stuff. But there's no way around it. It's a word of confrontation. To admonish someone means to affix blame to them. It carries the idea of correction. Correction. But it does also speak about the way the correction is given. It is to be given in a a way that doesn't provoke or embitter the person. There's two ways to to give correction. And and this word here in Nuthatel, it is a relational word. It's actually used of the advice of a big brother or, or a father to his children. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children, Paul says. So it's a relational word. It's an inherently positive word. It's not a negative thing. To be admonished is not a negative thing, unless you're perfect. In which case, there would be no need for anyone to admonish you, right? Right? But since we will all acknowledge that nobody is perfect, everybody needs to be admonished. Everyone needs to be admonished. But it's a relational thing. It's to be done relationally. Now, it's hard to do, practically speaking. It's hard to to do, it's hard to correct someone because it's, it's sort of an inherently distasteful thing to do, right? Can I, um, can I speak to you for a minute? Sure, what about? Right? It's hard. It's hard. You, you've got this, like, plank sticking out of your, you know. No, actually, that's my eye. You've got to. Anyway, it's, it's hard to admonish people. It's it's easy to become harsh in the process. It's easy to become authoritarian in the process. A lot of pitfalls along the way. Hey, you know what's really fun and really easy to do? Dispense Bible knowledge. That's that's a lot of fun. To just like be the Bible answer guy. Just stand up there, you know, and just, yeah, you know, answer these Bible questions. Everybody's going, oh, yeah, that's good stuff. And writing it all down. But what was really hard, what was really agonizing, is to use the Scripture to admonish people. But if we don't do that, there'll be no Christian growth. It's part of the discipleship process. I have a quote here for you from a, from a guy who knows what this is like. He lived quite a while ago. He says, we are certain to bring a good deal of the world into the church without knowing it. That's a good observation. We are certain to have instincts, habits, dispositions, associates perhaps, and likings which are hostile to the Christian type of character. And it is this which makes admonition indispensable. What he's basically saying is that is that when we are saved by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, that we don't get zapped 
and that we become immediately perfect. We are a work in progress, right? And the Spirit of God works over time, and and He sort of begins to transform us into the image of Christ. And along the way, there is stuff that has to go. It just has to go. It's incompatible with the new life in Christ. And somebody has to tell us that. Somebody has to open the Scriptures with us and show us that. Or we'll just proceed on our merry little way, right? Now, many elders in many churches uh, will not admonish. They will not admonish the flock. Why? Well, because they're afraid that if they do, people will get mad at them and leave the church. Or if they admonish the wrong person, it's going to show up in the offering plate. Some people get paralyzed by that. But if the, if the shepherd will not admonish the sheep, then they're not really a shepherd. They are a hireling. They are a hireling. The true shepherd will admonish the sheep for their own good. For their own good. So God requires rigorous effort. That's the first big lesson here. God requires hardworking men. But he doesn't let it go there. Paul doesn't let it go. Second, God appeals for right relationships between people and their leaders. It actually gives three characteristics here in verse, verses 12 and 13. Three characteristics of the right relationship of the people with their leadership. And he begins by requesting. You see it in verse 12. But we request of you, brethren. This is not an order. This is not a command. That's why I said God appeals for right relationships. He is appealing to us as believers that we be rightly related to our leadership. His first request is, is that we appreciate our leadership. Verse 12. We appreciate them. Literally, we know them. Literally speaking, it means to know them. Now, this is interesting because frequently the shepherd is is exhorted to know the sheep, right? Here, the sheep are exhorted to know the shepherd. And the knowledge that that Paul wants them to gain is is of the shepherd's worth, the shepherd's character, the shepherd's work. Now, I told you, it means literally to know, but but the the idea of relationship is so dominant here that the New American Standard and and most of the major translations kind of go along this way. they, They translate it with a word that expresses relationship. So here it's appreciate. The New American Standard. You appreciate those who are laboring. The idea is as we reflect upon what they are doing for us and among us, the sacrifices that they make to provide it to us, we appreciate that. We appreciate them. 
So the first characteristic of a right relationship between a, a leader and the people is one of appreciation. The people appreciate their leaders. Secondly, they esteem them. Verse 13, you esteem them very highly. Have highest regard for them, the NIV says. The idea Paul is communicating here is to to value the leaders, not necessarily because of who the leader is as an individual, but because of what the leader does. You esteem them very highly in love. Notice why? Because of what? Their work. Their work. Bible commentator I. Howard Marshall says it this way, In the New Testament church, honor is not given to people because of any qualities that they may possess due to birth or social status or natural gifts, but only on the basis of the spiritual task to which they are called. Honor them, esteem them, think highly of them because of the work they do. You need to understand what the work is, but once you understand it, then you would naturally appreciate it. Now, beloved, God cares about how we relate to those that are in authority over us. Did you know that? He really does care. We're exhorted to, to obey our leadership all over the Scriptures. We are, we are told to obey and honor our civil authorities. Isn't that right? Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God. Those which exist are established by God. So here's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If if we are to to honor those in authority over us who are from outside the family of God, then how much more are we to honor those over us who are part of the family of God? Right? Right? And the reason we, we honor, Paul gives it here, is because no authority, there is no authority except from God. We honor leadership because in doing so we honor God who establishes leadership. And thus we really honor Him. By the way, if we can get a hold of this idea, it will revolutionize all of your authority and submission relationships. We don't honor those in authority over us because they are necessarily honorable. We honor those in authority over us because God has established them and He is honorable. Now, husbands and wives, right? There's a, there's a relationship of submission and authority and it is a God-given relationship and so we embrace it because God established it. There is a relationship between parents and children. We embrace it because God established it. There is a relationship between masters and slaves, or in a modern parlance, between employers and employees, and we embrace it because God established it. There is a relationship between the leaders of the church and the church that we embrace because God established it. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. Now, we have a natural tendency to take leaders for granted. We all have that natural tendency, right? We sort of forget what they've done for us and and we complain about them rather than be thankful. 
We tend to major on people's shortcomings, and we disregard their strengths. Classic example, of course, would be Moses. Scripture tells us Moses was the most humble man alive, established by God to lead Israel out, right, out of Egypt and into the promised land. And what was Moses' relationship like with those who he was leading? Difficult. There were times that Moses thought the people were going to turn on him and kill him. Now, how could they be so messed up? Wrong question. How can we be so messed up? Beloved, no group of leaders is perfect. All leaders have their shortcomings. All leaders have their weaknesses. All leaders have their sins. Beyond that, every believer has their own perspective on how things ought to be. Right? How the leader ought to do their job. Inevitably, the the best of leaders are are accused of wrong judgment. They're, They're accused of pride. They're accused of doing too much, doing too little. Moving too fast, going too slow. Changing things too quickly, not changing things quickly enough. Being too harsh, being too permissive. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. Paul says, esteem them very highly in love. See it? In love. Love characterizes the relationship between the leaders and their people. People who love their leaders have great understanding, great tolerance for their leaders' shortcomings and their leaders' mistakes. And there's love flowing between leadership and people then the leadership mistakes are viewed in the best possible light. All right, the Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Love suffers long. We're told in 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins. See, love is the, is the mortar that holds together the building called the people of God. Very important. Alexander Strzok commenting on the lack of love in many churches. He writes as follows. He says, Most controversies between leaders and congregations are not due to theological differences, but due to unsanctified human ambitions, jealousy, and personality clashes. The real root of many church problems lies in a lamentable immaturity in the area of biblical love. How right on he is. So appreciate your leaders, Paul says. Esteem your leaders. Third, characteristic of the right relationship is peace. Live in peace with one another. End of verse 13. Live in peace with one another. Now the construction here that that Paul uses to communicate this is is he's not telling them to, to make peace. He's telling them to maintain the peace 
that already exists there among them. He is complimenting them, actually. He's complimenting the church. He's implying that the church has peaceful relations and and that these peaceful relations are to be maintained. They're not to be broken. Keep doing what you're doing. And I think if, if Paul were writing to, to Foothill Bible Church, he would say the same thing. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep living in peace with each other. Keep living in peace. One another. It's a mutuality going on here. Right? Both leaders and people maintaining the peace. Ever been in a church that's not characterized by peace? Very, very hard place to be. It's a hard place to find God. All kinds of infighting, squabbling going on. Beloved, the church at peace is like an oasis in the midst of a, of a spiritual wilderness. Next week, we're going to celebrate a 20th anniversary. God has given us 20 years of peace. The most amazing gift. Something that we should not take for granted. To think lightly of. No one grows spiritually in a church that's marked by fighting and squabbling. They grow in a church where the members are at peace with one another and with God. Admonishing and exhorting and encouraging one another to live and grow in the likeness of Christ. We are very, very blessed here. Very blessed. This kind of a sermon is a challenge to preach. It's a challenge to preach because uh, it could come across as critical. But it's not meant to be critical at all. There's much to rejoice in here. Much to rejoice in. It reminds us of the importance of the task. It's a call to the elders among us to work hard at their responsibilities. It's a call to us as a a congregation to understand and appreciate the sacrifice that these men make on our behalf. Value them highly, to love them. And we do. We do. It's a reminder of the importance of living at peace with one another for For the purpose of gospel growth. Next week in the morning service, it'll be an abbreviated service, which means an abbreviated sermon, which is very hard to do. It's going to take more prep time to do an abbreviated sermon. Because following the morning service, the service will end at 11.30 next week. We will dismiss you for 10 minutes and call it back together. It's 10 minutes to go get your children. Okay, or go to the bathroom or whatever else you have to do. 
And then we will call you back at, at 11.40 to begin the business meeting. It'll be a simple business meeting, just two agenda items. One will be the, the reaffirmation of the elders and deacons who are, who are laboring hard among you. The other will be to affirm the work of the finance committee and the elders with regard to the budget. If prior years are any reliable predictor of this year, and I fully expect they are, then we probably will be done sometime around 12.15. So don't set your pot roast to be ready too early. And then we will go home and, and rest and come back. We have the most amazing celebration planned. It begins at 5 o'clock. Last count I heard was 435 people had RSVP'd. I guess threatening to expunge your name from the book of life (laughs) worked. This also means, by the way, that we have turned uh, a leaf here in the history of Foothill Bible Church. We have now actually had a deadline that that we're going to enforce. Okay? There's no turning back. From this point forward, sign-up deadlines are actually going to mean something. But it's going to be glorious. It's going to be a glorious, glorious time. To reflect together, to, to sing to hear the testimonies of those whose lives have been touched by the grace of God and the ministry of this church in the last 20 years. There's an amazing video that even now is being prepared that will, that will recount the faithfulness of God bringing this church about, seeing us through. It's been a fantastic time to celebrate. And we have so much to celebrate. So much. But in terms of a practical application of of this text this morning, let me just just say this. The elders pray for you by name. Let me suggest that you pray for them by name. If you're not sure who they are, there's out here in the foyer, there's a, a bulletin board where their pictures are listed. It's actually a a title over the top of it, it says, Serving God by Serving... Anybody know what the other word is? You. Serving God by Serving You. Get to know the elders. There's a relatively new family to the church, and I won't mention who they are, but they are talked about membership and so forth, and they said... Yeah, we, we want to become members, but we want to get to know the elders. So they're inviting the elders over to their home for dinner. Not all together, but sequentially. I mean, you could do it all together. Because they want to get to know the elders. I thought that was a great idea. A great idea. Beloved, we can't know each other too well. The more we know one another the more we interact with one another, the more we'll care for one another, and the more dramatic will be the work of God in and through this congregation 
in this community. God has done a glorious thing. All praise to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the elders. We thank you, Father, that you have put it on the hearts of these men and and their families to be willing to make the kind of sacrifices that they have been called on to make through the years. Some of these men have been, have been doing this nigh on 20 years. And it has cost something. But our Father, it is, uh, it is a labor of love. It, it is a sacrifice that both they and their, and their families willingly make. Because they believe that you have called them to this task. And there's great joy in it. And I thank you that they're willing to, to serve in this way. I appreciate so much their ministry. Now, Father, I know that this body appreciates them too. And I just thank you for the 20 years of good relationships, peace and harmony, love in the flock, love of the flock for its leaders and leaders for the people. Now, Father, we don't know what the next 20 years will bring. It's certain the times are changing and the landscape is altered. The sacrifices that will have to be made, our Father, we're not sure yet, but we suspect that they will be greater still. And those that are in leadership, our Father, are called to make the greatest sacrifices. So I pray for these men that you would strengthen them in the inner man and you would you would just cause them to find a great sense of joy in what you've called them to do. I pray for them in their ministry among us that they would shepherd the flock of God with love and compassion, gentleness, and fearlessness, admonishing where admonishing is called for, but, but doing it in a way that is gentle, kind. And pray for us, our Father, that we would not grow complacent. That we would not entertain gripes and groanings and murmurings and gossips. That we would refuse to fall prey to the sins of Israel in the, in the wilderness that we would instead entrust ourselves to you, working through those you have raised up among us. Our Father, we pray for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to, to continue to go out from this place, both domestically and internationally. For those who we send out are, are only as strong as the home base from which they've been sent. So we have a real part in the ministry, our Father. Help us to recognize that.
Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.